0: Glad that you are. I'm glad that you are here. First um, Corinthians. Let me just say, as we as we pray, um, thank you. As we pray, um, this is an impossible task and a ridiculous task to try to preach the book of First Corinthians in one sermon. And so, um, I just want to make it clear from the outset, like we have with other books, but all the more with First Corinthians. I will not be touching on everything in 1 Corinthians at all. There will be lots of things that I will gloss over. That is not because we gloss over these things. It's because in the context of what we are doing here, is we are teaching through, if you're not aware, we're teaching through the book of Acts. And we're, we're preaching through that. Um, and then we just are taking these little detours. And so last week we talked about Paul in the city of Corinth. And so we thought, oh, it's good to then look at his um, first letter, his letters to that church that we just studied, like what, we just looked at where where he was and what he was doing and those people. And then it just, we thought it would be great to be able to look back at that and say, okay, so that's the context. Those are the people that he is writing this letter to. And so that's kind of the heart, um, just kind of big picture ideas. I would encourage you read 1 Corinthians this week. Just read through it multiple times. And, and just see if God gives insight um, and just encouragement um, through his word. I know, I know that he will. I believe that he will. So let's pray. Father, you are a good, good father. And Lord, right now, I am drawing so much comfort and peace from knowing that apart from the power of your spirit, my words are meaningless. And that I know, God, the calling this morning is not to exhaustively treat the the letter of 1 Corinthians, but God, that you would stir the affections of your people for you. That, Holy Spirit, you would move in our hearts and that we would be reminded and see anew or see for the first time or remember with renewed passion and longing that we are indeed one body. That you brought us as individuals that were once alienated from you and separated and and we're not a people, that you made us a people. Help us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So what Paul is doing here in in 1 Corinthians primarily is he's giving instruction to the church on how to be the church. And what you'll notice in each of his letters, he deals with different issues. And he deals with different issues because he's writing to real people in a real time, in a real place, and so what I want to kind of do is give you a broad overview of this is kind of his aim. This is his overall aim. And then we're going to look at um, three specific situations that he's illustrating, that he's using to illustrate the point that he's trying to make through the entire book. The way it's supposed to work as a church, and we have all kinds of different images and understandings of church, but as it's supposed to work, as it's laid out in scripture, is that we are individuals who are alienated from God, but that we are saved and that we are reconciled to God, that our relationship, even though we have sinned and we are separated from God, that through uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven, we are redeemed, we are reunited, reconciled, and adopted as sons and daughters of God. And as sons and daughters of God, we are also heirs With Christ. We are inheritance of, we inherit everything from God, our Father, because the Bible even talks about us as firstborn sons, whether male or female or whatever we are, we are firstborn sons. We have inherited everything. And when we are, when that happens to us, as we've talked about before, if I am adopted as a son, and you are adopted as a son, and you are adopted as a daughter, and then that makes us brothers and sisters. We are not just all individuals in this walk. We are actually a family. And not just a family, but what Paul is going to lay out is the very body of Christ. And the way it's supposed to work is as we are saved, as we are reconciled, that we are formed together as a family, and then we are sanctified individually and together as a community. And as a family, we are put on display for the rest of the world that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. It's God's strategy, does that make sense? Like when Christ left, he leaves the Holy Spirit with us and we actually become the body of Christ. And we are the people that are set, the city on a hill, light in the midst of darkness, salt to preserve and to season, and to give life and to exhibit this abundant life. That people may see us and that in our lives and in our words, We are proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. That's the way it's supposed to look. And you see that in the early church many times where people look at this church and they say, they're like, wow, something is different there. Something is going on. And then they're able to proclaim, yes, because we belong to Jesus. And then they say, well, who is this Jesus? And then they are able to proclaim that. And then other more people, some mock, but others believe and find life. And what's happening there is this very supernatural thing. You may have heard that we are the hands and feet of Jesus, right? How many of you heard that phrase before? Don't worry, it's not a trap. I'm not going to be like, it's wrong. No, it's, um, it's, it's good. It's true. It's true, but it's not complete. Here's why. Often when we say that, we kind of say it as like we're carrying on Jesus' memory. You know, like sometimes we do that with people where someone is working on something or they they are faithfully served in some area and they pass away and we say like, I want to carry on their memory by doing this thing. And that's good and right and, and beautiful. But with Jesus, we're not carrying on in his memory. We are supernaturally formed as the body of Christ because of the Holy Spirit We are not merely hands and feet that are kind of carrying on his work. We are actually the hands and feet of Jesus, supernaturally formed together in the spirit. We are the body. And as we function, we tell the world who this Jesus is and what he is like. And when we do that faithfully, it is beautiful. And when we do that unfaithfully, it is abhorrent. We are telling lies about who our Jesus is. And so this is why it's so important to Paul. He's saying, you are, you are, so, you are one body, so you must be united. We are not a bunch of individual representatives of Christ where it would be nice if we got along. We are one body. It's like running a a three-legged race. Or telling, if you've ever played that game where you try to tell a story with a group of people, but you only get one word, the next person has to say the word, it's more like that. I see that that illustration landed perfectly. (laughs) Got a bunch of confused looks. Never mind, forget about it. Three-legged race, remember that. But everything we do is to build up the body, to protect the body, encourage the body to be more like Jesus, to be as true of a picture of Jesus as we can be. And when we fail to point to the grace and the mercy of our Jesus and let even that glorify him. But that is broken in Corinth. There are divisions. They are not being the body of Christ. He says in, verse, or in chapter one, Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. So there's division and quarreling that's happening here. And you can understand because it's it's a very, very diverse church. It's socioeconomically diverse, it's ethnically diverse, the religious backgrounds are all over the place. Remember all the idols that Paul saw all around? It's not just Christian, non-Christian, or Jew, um, and now believer in Christ as the Messiah. We're talking about like all the idols, and it's not just like, well pagans, it's like you, you worship this king, and this god, and this god, and all these different philosophies. Not to mention, like I said, the socioeconomic diversity, there is all kinds of social diversity going on and they are supposed to form together as the church. You would think that at this point, Paul would say, hey, look, this is kind of ridiculous. So let's go ahead and have like all the Greeks who worship this idol, you guys just worship together. Try to follow Jesus, do you guys together. You figure that out. All the Jews, you guys worship together over here. All the, the Gentiles who worshiped God but are not Jewish, you guys, you guys form a church over here. That's kind of the way we function, right? We kind of figure like, well, let's just be together with people that are like us. And that's really the best expression of the church. But that's not what they do. They say, you need to be one body. And he says, there's division. And the main thing, the root of this division that he's going to address, address is their self-centeredness and their arrogance about how, how well they 're nailing it, and Paul's going to confront it. see they are, they are arrogant they, they think they, they have it all figured out, they are completely unaware of their blind spots. they think that they are mature, but Paul actually says they are spiritual infants he says this He's saying, you you think you are mature. Now understand, please, we have to understand this, that they would have heard this and said, who are you talking about? You're not talking about me. You're not talking about my camp, my group. Oh, I know who you're talking about. You're talking about those people over there who worship those idols and do those things. And Paul has the unenviable task from a distance in a letter of saying, no, you're all functioning in this way. You should be mature, but you are spiritual infants. And what is the sign of their spiritual infancy? Jealousy and strife. Divisions, infighting, lack of love. He goes on and he's saying, he kind of lays out what his life has been. And he he's, he's basically said, they, they think the way of Jesus is foolish. They believe in the things about Jesus, but this way that they're living is foolish. And Paul says, if that's foolish, then we're fools for Christ. And then he goes into this lovely, like, I wish I could break this passage down because I love it so much. Because he just, like, goes on a sarcastic rant. And I love it. And Robbie will tell me that it's not sarcasm. I don't even know where Robbie is. But he will tell me it's not sarcasm. You can ask Robbie what word he would use. I use sarcasm, okay? And, like, irony, whatever. But he's saying, like, oh, you have everything. You have all that you need. You have already become kings, we are foolish people. We are, we are nothing. Like we, we're reviled while you are praised and you have everything figured out and we like are just still struggling through and we are, you, are, you are loved and beloved and we are reviled and we are the scum of the earth. And so he lays all that out and he says, I don't say this to shame you, side note, That's why Robbie would say it's not sarcasm, because sarcasm is meant to mock and shame or whatever. Paul doesn't say this to shame them. What he's doing is he wants to put on display how ridiculous it is that they would say that, that if they think this is what describes maturity in Christ, and what they're saying is the apostles are not mature because their life looks miserable. And so if you ever look at it and say, well, if I'm going to follow Jesus, and that must mean everything will work out for me, well, then look at the heroes of the faith and say, like, is that true? Does that hold water? If I just have enough faith, then everything will go perfectly. If I just do things the right way, then everything will work out perfectly. If you believe that, then Paul would stand here and say, like, okay, well then, I guess we're fools. Because we are the scum of the earth. And he says in, in verse 18 of chapter 4, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. And he says, I'm, I'm confronting this. He said, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Yikes. That is like the greatest, like, dad's coming home from work line ever. It says, these people who are distracting you with this and they are shaming you with their arrogance and they are dividing the family, they're arrogant as though I'm not coming to see you. I am coming to see you. And when I come to see you, we're gonna find out what the power is of these arrogant people because the kingdom of God is about power, not about talk. It's serious. This is really what I want you to understand about this. Paul is grieving over this and he is pushing for this because it's so Serious that we are the body of Christ. And so, as they are kind of in that situation, now he's going to give examples. I just want to give these three examples that he gives, and he gives much more, many more, and we could be be here forever doing this, but I just want the big idea here to be that it matters that we are the body of Christ. It matters that we are unified. It matters that we see one another as members of the same body, not as other individuals who just attend church together. And if we think we see it that way, we may not be quite as mature as we want to be or would like to think that we are. And we can look at these illustrations that Paul is going to use to show this is what I mean when I say you are not as mature as you think you are. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, he's going to address this first issue that I can tell you're not very mature because you don't take holiness seriously at all. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Let's be clear. There's so many different ways we could go with this. You're already reading that and think like this is like telenovela kind of stuff going on here, and it is. There's been a lot made of like what's the response? Are they celebrating this sin? I think actually what's happening here is that they're looking at this mess over here, sorry. <laughs> it's like everybody's looking at this mess over here over here and they're looking at it and going like I'm not as bad as them. Like I'm I'm doing pretty good. I'm not trying to hook up with my stepmother. I'm winning. And Paul's saying, you're arrogant. That's happening among you? And you would boast in your maturity? And then he says this, ought you not rather mourn? Here's what I love about this. The answer to being arrogant about other people's sin is not arrogance about your stance against that sin. You understand the difference? This is important. The opposite, the response that he gives is not to arrogance about like, oh, about my own righteousness and about, and about like accepting or towards sin is not to be arrogant in my stance against it. Many times this passage, passage gets used to say, and that's why we have to stand against these sins. It is not his point, And I know it's not his point because he says, ought you not rather mourn? The posture that we are to have towards sin in our church body is one of mourning and grief. It is not judgmental and arrogant, but mournful. He says your boasting is not good, and he wants to admonish them and wake them up because it matters, because holiness matters and we want to fall in these ditches, we think that it's either, like I just have to make sure it's clear that I condemn that sin that's going on and distance myself, or I have to go in the other ditch and say, well, hey, we all sin. Nobody's perfect. Just let it go. Don't worry about it. Here's why it matters. It matters because we are the body of Christ. And Paul is going to push the envelope here and it gets a little weird, but we got to go there with him He says, you're not just individual disciples. You are the body of Christ and Christ is holy. Therefore, we are to be holy as he is holy. Not because we're just mimicking him, but because we are actually the body of Christ. That is who we are and that is who we are becoming. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? What? What? He's just talking about sexual immorality. He's saying the reason why sexual immorality is a big deal is because you are the body of Christ. It's why it doesn't matter. It's why we don't judge outsiders. It's because here in the body of Christ, we are members of the body of Christ. And when I engage in sexual immorality, I am am unifying Christ and bonding Christ with that sexual immorality. I'm, what Paul says, I'm joining him, to a prostitute. I mean, at this point, they might be being like, all right, Paul, calm down, we get it. No dating your stepmother, got it. But this is why it's so serious. He says, do you not know, in verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Here's the main point. You are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. When one of us sins, we don't sin as ourselves, as individuals anymore. We sin as the body of Christ because we are not your own. You were bought with a price. I was bought with a price. And it's on all of us. When I sin, I put that on all of us. We all grieve. If, If a hand touches a hot stove the whole body hurts. The whole body is weakened. The whole body grieves. Now it's so easy then to say, okay, that's that tension that we hold to say, okay, we mourn. But if my hand gets put on the stove, we don't immediately just say, well, my hand hurts and we cut it off and throw it away. Now, there are things about that with avoiding sin and temptation, the seriousness of that, and I get that. But, but what we're talking about here is we don't look at it as like, ah, that dumb hand, why did it go on the stove again? It's my hand. It's my body. I grieve over the pain that that's causing and then I desire to bring healing and restoration and make it whole. I do not spend all my time angry at my hand. I look at it and say you're my hand. Like we we need to be made whole together. Let's bring healing here. And he's saying like this is your identity. This is who you are and it matters because we are the body of Christ and you have a new identity. So I don't have time to go into this, but in 1 Corinthians 6, he talks about all the types, the people who will not inherit the kingdom of um, of heaven. And what he's talking about is an identity thing. Like you, this was your identity before. You were these things. You were gossips and slanderers and revilers and sexually immoral. You were all those things, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were cleansed. That's not who you are anymore. And so as a body, you are no longer individuals who used to be identified by all these things. You are now a part of a body together. And if we want to go on with those lists, which we always like to pick out of those lists. So let's, let's just pick one out of the list. In chapter 10, he gives a list in 1 Corinthians 10.6. He goes on, he says, now, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He's talking about their fathers wandering through the desert and all the sin they committed. And in that, he says, don't engage in idolatry as some of them did. Don't be sexually immoral as some of them did. Don't put Christ to the test as many of them did. So he's warning them against all these things. And then he says, don't grumble. I just want to put this one out here. Whether you just got here, I don't know, or if you're from here, Midwesterners are world champions in grumbling. We just are. We just are because we think it's a sign of strength. Because you know, because partly because there and there's there's a redeemed version that kind of feeds into that because we have a sense of responsibility and you just you got to do what is right. There are other cultures in the world who are like, I don't want to, so I'm not going to do it. I don't care. We don't have that because we just like, oh, I really should do this. And so then it kind of comes out and and we we grumble with one another. There's good news and bad news about living in a grumbling culture. The, The bad news is that we all learn really well to grumble, so much so that it becomes white noise. We don't even notice it. But here's the good news. It's easy to stand out when we don't grumble. It's easy to stand out when we are marked by joy. It's easy to stand out because we believe that our Father has ordained our steps and that he is with us in every moment and that he is working all things together for good. And so we learn to grieve without grumbling. And when we do that, people see that and they think, well, that's different. You seem to be sad about this thing, but you're also joyful and at peace that you seem to be grieving over the brokenness here out here but but you're not like talking about how that's just impacting you and how it's making your life harder because when we grumble we paint Christ as a grumbler and our Jesus is not a grumbler so that's why it matters and so we shouldn't mourn over that. we shouldn't go around chastising, grumbling about other people's grumbling. Yeah, you're right. Those people do grumble all the time. I hate that. We're doing the thing then. Rather, we come alongside people and we say like, hey, I want you to experience joy. I know this is hard right now, but I want you to experience the joy that is in Christ. Like how do I, how do I come alongside of you and do that? And we grieve with people. We need to grieve with people well that's like a really good way to help people fight against grumbling is to grieve with them and then point them to joy. Because it it testifies to the work of the Spirit in our lives. I have to to move on, but I do want to say, I just want to say this. If we're going to do this, then we have to be willing to remove ourselves. The the Christian church, especially in our country, I only speak about this country because this is the church I know best, we have a tendency to stand at a distance and point out sin and think that that is holiness. It's not. Holiness is when we see sin in the body and we jump in the trenches with one another and we fight against that sin and pursue holiness together. That's what it looks like to pursue holiness as the church and to take that seriously That we should love one another to patiently call out sin, to be in the trenches with one another. I want us to be a church where we have tons of grace and patience with one another. A church where we do not judge one another. We are not haughty or arrogant, but we are humble and gracious and kind. But that we are also a place where we take holiness seriously not in shaming, but through linking of arms with one another and saying, I will fight alongside of you. We are one body. Your burden is my burden. That is a high bar. That is something that I have struggled to figure out how to do, but I can't do it in my own strength. It is only in the power of the Holy Spirit when we realize we're supernaturally made His body. That one will, by extension, be the longest one. He then goes on, he talks about giving up your rights for others. He says you're demonstrating your immaturity and that you are so focused on what you should do and what you should be able to do and what I can do that you are, you've lost sight of your brothers and sisters. He, he talks about it in, in Romans, or Romans 6, 1 Corinthians 6, where he talks about they're suing one another in the public courts. And he, it's driving him crazy. And one of the funny things about this is he's basically saying, what? you're so mature, like we already covered this, you like know everything, you're so wise, you already have all this figured out and you can't find anybody among you who can settle disputes among you? Huh, do you think about that? Like they're, they're so arrogant about how wise they are and yet when they have disputes with one another, they're going to, they're going, um, to the pagan courts to settle it because they can't find anybody in their, in their church body who is wise enough to settle the dispute. Like, well, that doesn't sound very mature. That doesn't sound very wise. But he says not only doing this, now he is saying it for their shame. He says in, in verse five, I say this to your shame in chapter six. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That right there is one of the verses that are, we just love to get rid of so quickly. Think about the last dispute that you had and imagine Paul saying, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? I mean, that doesn't that just, doesn't that just hit everything about us? We're like, no, because it's not just and I need to be just and right. And Paul's saying, for the sake of the unity of the body, wouldn't you rather be wronged than to bring shame on the name of Christ and disunity? And that only matters. That only makes sense if you are not your own. It's like you suing yourself. That's what Paul's trying to say. It's so ridiculous. It's like you suing yourself. Right? I agree. It's ridiculous. Wouldn't you rather be wronged? And so he doesn't just talk about the suing. He talks about eating meat. Then in chapter eight, people are like, well, is it right to eat meat or is it not? Is it, is it right or is it wrong? Should I do that? Can I do this? Do I have freedom to do this or do I not? And for them, it was all about the issue of the meat. And Paul's saying, that's not the issue. Wouldn't you rather give up eating meat? He says in chapter eight, verse 11. So by your knowledge, your knowledge that it's okay to eat meat, This weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. See the like intimate language he's talking about here? Like when you decide what was happening is some people were eating meat. They said it was okay. Other people said, no, it's a sin because this meat was sacrificed to idols and we need to follow this law. And so they were struggling. And so they're going, they're basically saying like, who's right? Paul's saying, you're just asking the wrong question. So it's okay to eat meat. Well, good for you. By your knowledge, your brother's destroyed. You caused him to stumble because you insisted that you had the right to do this thing. And he says, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, I know as Wisconsinites, aren't we glad that that is not the issue before us? Like, no more Bratwursts ever. But the question is, are you willing? It may not be about Bratwursts, but it may very well be about things like alcohol. It may very well be about things like music. I can't give you a list of like, these are things that are good, these are things that are evil, and these are things. What I can say is, love your brother that's in front of you. Seek to serve them. Help the weaker one. Paul then talks about giving up his right of getting financial support. He's like, don't we have the right to do that? And he lists all these rights. Are we the only ones who can't get married? Are we the only ones who can't take pay for our labor? Are we the only ones who can't eat meat? He's saying like we are giving up all of these rights. The question isn't do I have the right to? The question is is this good for the body? I know one of the hardest transitions, at least for me in getting married and transitioning to married life, was realizing that I didn't get to make all my own decisions anymore. Like friends would want to hang out and I'm like, sure, I need to ask. And not because like Lauren is like my dictator or whatever, but like now we are one flesh and so now we make that decision together. And we do that as the body of Christ. We are not our own. And for the sake of the body we give up our rights like wouldn't you rather be wronged wouldn't you rather give up meat wouldn't you rather go unpaid and if our answer is no then we are not as mature as we think i mean it'd be like running a marathon and your arms telling your brain hey our legs are slowing us down like just ditch them We don't need those anyway. Like, I'm ready to go. Like, I'm pumping like this. I'm good. I still got more in me. Like, how ridiculous is that? We move together. We grow in maturity together. And if someone is weak, then we help them. I lay down my right to move faster, and I help the weaker brother. Because when I am the weaker brother, I need that help. And Paul says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. It's worth it, he says. And then finally, he says, you're showing your immaturity in how you worship together as a body. Your immaturity is on display in worship because you, you see that when you gather together as an assembly, which is this right here, he's saying as you gather together, you don't gather together as a body. You gather together as individuals who are just kind of looking to fill up your own spiritual cup, put your own gifts on display. You approach worship flippantly and selfishly and arrogantly. And he shows it in a couple of ways. One, he says in, in communion. He says this about communion. He says, when you come together in chapter 11, verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat, They'd be like, what do you mean? We take communion. It'd be like Paul writing a letter to us. He said, when you come together, that's not communion that you're doing. We're like, yes, it is. We have all the elements. And he says, no, it's not. He says, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. He's not saying your communion needs some help. He's saying it is not the Lord's Supper and it's not the Lord's Supper because you aren't doing it in unity. You are ignoring your brother. You are humiliating your brother. What was meant for unity is dividing But communion is meant to unify the church, to proclaim Christ. It is not an individual activity. And I realized this is something I've had to come out of in this whole experience. I've just been so convicted over and over again of how often in the past I viewed communion as this individual experience, me and God. But it is not that. If it was that, then he would not call us to do it when we're assembled together. That would be part of a personal quiet time. That would be a part of personal devotions, but it is not. It is the body. When we come together, we are to observe communion, to proclaim Christ until he comes. That's the point. It matters how we do communion. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that the way we are doing it is the right way. What I am saying is it matters how we do it. See the difference? I don't know. There, may be, there are other ways. There are faithful ways that people take communion. I'm just saying it matters. If we ever get to a place where we're flipping about I'm like, yeah, it, like, that doesn't matter. Like, just, let's just do whatever whatever makes it easier logistically. Whatever makes it easier, like, just do that. Like, no, it matters. It's serious. And it's serious because it's actual participation in the body. So much like holiness matters because we are joining Christ to sin, Communion, the way we do it matters because it is participation in the body. In chapter 10, verse 16, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. One Christ, many members of his body so it matters. And so however we do it, we want to make sure that we are are proclaiming that, that we are doing it together. And yes, that makes it a little messy and it makes it like take time and it makes it a little chaotic and we have to kind of remind like, hey, this is a time of worship and we do all those things, but we joyfully do it because we want to do it together because it's participation. Something supernatural is happening. I don't, can't fully describe what that is. I can't tell you exactly what that is. What I know is what the Bible talks about is we're not just simply remembering, we are participating with him when we take communion. Kind of makes me want to take communion again, but we already did that, so. The other thing he talks about is our gifts. He said, I see the lack of maturity in the way you worship together. When you come together, you just want to exhibit your own gifts. You're just so, you're, you're, you're arrogant about the gifts that you have and that other people don't have and you just wanna, you wanna put those out there. And I wish I had time to go into spiritual gifts, but the point isn't specifically about the gifts that are mentioned, it's about their purpose. So you got to be careful when you're looking at scripture and saying, like, what's the point? What is he actually driving at here to to help us understand the main point? Well, the main point in this is, is not the specific gifts. It is what is the purpose of the gifts. And the purpose of the gifts unequivocally is to build up the body. And specifically in worship, when we gather together, specifically what builds up and gives encouragement here. And there's a couple things about that. One is that We all need one another. He goes on, he talks about the the members of the body and the eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you. This is kind of going against the idea that, that one, we have to understand it is important that we are all together because you have gifts that God is wanting to use this morning to build up the body. And because we are really good, like uh, the culture that we are in, we see everything as what do we get out of it. We see everything as like, I really need, I need to go to church today. I need to go do this thing. Well, that is true. You receive blessing. I receive blessing from being here, but we also give blessing. Our gifts are important. You are here not by accident. You are sitting where you are sitting, not by accident. And too often you come to church as just attenders. And I say this, like, to, like, then, like you put all the pressure. Listen, if, you're, if our hope on the ministry of the body is this sermon, I, I don't even know what to say about that. We're in bad shape. But if we come together as the body and say, no, 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 I'm going to participate in the body of Christ to minister whatever gifts God has given me and wired me for I want to use them to build up the body for the good of the body we need all of the gifts and they're meant to build up the church which means not all the gifts that all of us have are on display here in this gathering and that's good and that's right that's what Paul's talking about he goes on he talks about tongues and I just love how he says he's like I I think God that I speak in tongues more than any of you he says, but I would rather speak five words that are clear and helpful for instruction and building up than 10,000 words in a tongue that just leave people confused. Some of you might think that is describing my sermon. Maybe I should, five words. I felt that way a couple weeks ago. And this is gonna, like, so we had a testimony of baptisms and we're gonna have them here again. But uh, before worship in the park, we had a couple of baptisms And I don't know if Renee's here, and I'm so sorry, please forgive me, but man, Renee got up here, and she just said, Sherry gave this incredible testimony, and people were like moved by it, and I'm looking at their faces, and you guys were moved by Sherry's testimony. And I thought like, man, I I have to work hard for that kind of response. And Sherry just gets up there and shares what Jesus is doing, and everyone's like, oh, it's amazing. And then Renee gets up there, and she's basically like, I love Jesus. I want to follow him. And you're all like, bah! it takes me like 25 minutes to get to that. I'm sitting there, i like literally looking at your faces and going, ah, ah, that's the ministry of the body. Like, I can say all kinds of things, but when you turn around and you give a word of encouragement to your brother or sister, it matters. It's beautiful. It ministers to their heart in a way that all my flailing about can't do. And until we get that, we will always go in and be like, all right, what's going to happen today? Instead of saying, like, no, we are the body of Christ, and I will serve God whatever you want. I want to receive blessing from you, Lord, but I also want to give blessing. I want to encourage and we do that intentionally, like in our corporate worship service, we want to make sure we want to go with what's clear and not what's vague. We want to use this time well, what's useful for building up, what is commanded. And so, yeah, that means we're simple. We, we sing songs, we preach the word, we pray together, we observe the ordinances, like we take communion, all right? It's not for like all the other things that we could possibly be doing. Right? Joe Mutchler or Jason, like they have ridiculous ranges. And know not even start with Sarah, like ridiculous ranges. Do you know what they do every Sunday morning? Vocal ranges is what I'm talking about. Like, um, they can sing really low and really high. And you know what they do? Bring it in. Where can our congregation sing with me? For Jason, Jason's got like, you know, girl range, right? <laughs> and he's gotta just slide it down. And do you understand that every time he is sliding it down into a range, what he is doing is humbly serving this body and saying, yeah, I could belt this out at a higher key. And you guys would all think, wow, listen to those vocals. But instead, I'm going to sing it down here because it's important that you are singing with me. That's an intentional choice. Like Robbie loves digging into Greek. Robbie is a Greek nerd. I mean, he's just a nerd, but he's a Greek nerd. Like, Star Wars, all the things, like, whatever. But dude, like, do you know where he goes with that? Me. You're welcome. He comes into my office and is like, hey, there's another word that I don't know. And I'm like, okay, yeah, all right, let me have it. Do you know why? He doesn't do that here. Do you know why? Because he would rather speak five words that are clear and helpful and encouraging than, like, flex his Greek muscles with all these different things. He's not going to do it. Because that's is what we do here together. I just, so many things, so many things that you guys are doing right now and serving in such ways that, yeah, we don't do that here. We try to be really focused. I, I feel like we've got this beautiful painting out here. Anybody knows this beautiful painting out here in this hallway? All right, that's um, Lou over here, painted that and gifted it to the church. I love art like that. I love it. I sometimes just go over there and during the week and I just stare at it. It stirs my affections. And some of you feel the same way. you probably walked, I've had you tell me, like, who, that is beautiful. And it stirs your affections. And then there are others of you that look at it and you're like, what's that? (laughs) I get it, all right? That's why we don't have Lou come up here. I'm not gonna have Lou come up here right now and paint in front of everybody in the corporate assembly. Like, it's a beautiful gift and it builds up the body and encourages my heart. It Actually, that painting has worked its way behind the scenes into so many of the sermons that maybe, God willing, you've benefited from because it stirred my heart, my love for Jesus. We build one another up. and In this corporate assembly, we do the things that we know are gonna hit the most people, that we are together and we give up our preferences, right? We give up those things and be like, yeah, I don't, it's not about, Like what I want in this. It's about the body together. But this is why this is so critical. Here's what I'm going to ask. This is my my pitch for the practical side of it. I want to ask that we do this in our corporate service. Right now, incredible things are happening. Like it just is every week. Every week, we're getting story upon story upon story. We're about to have another baptism. God is moving in really incredible ways. And the way that he chooses to move is through his people, through the body building up the church. So here's what I'm asking for our corporate worship time, this gathering. I want to ask that you come prepared. Imagine if I got up in the morning, if you found out, like I come up here and I preach a terrible sermon and you're like, Hey, so that wasn't the best. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, what do you expect? I didn't even look at the passage until this morning. I woke up at like nine and just kind of rolled in here. Would you feel loved? Am I serving the body well? I'm not. One of the things that happens is when you buy into the idea that you are participants with the body of Christ and participants in it, is that you realize, I should get up and prepare. I should come to the service prepared to be ministered to and to minister to others. And I would ask, like, as you do that, like, one of the things I would say is, arrive early. And I know, immediately, just so you know, I'm a late person, okay? So if you are a late person, it's not about being late. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is that we think about it. Why do we think church starts at 9 30? Well, because we say it does. Okay, fair enough. But, like, we put it on the website. That's our fault. Our bad. But really, what we say in Colorado is church starts at least 15 minutes before. The body assembling together. Give yourself time. Be here to encourage one another. To go up and check and see how somebody's doing. Like, buy into the idea, okay, God, you have people for me to minister to. And there will be weeks where you're running, like, chaotically, and you're here 10 minutes late, and you know what? We love you, and that's that's not a thing at all. Because in that week, like we will, let us minister to you. Let us minister to you by finding seats and by people moving over. It's our joy to do that. But look if our posture just turned to saying we're participants, like plan to be here early, plan to leave late because you want to be available. Like nobody's here later than I am on a Sunday. I'll be here, I'll shut the place down. As long as people want to talk, I'm here. That's helpful because I'm wired as an extrovert. I can do that. All right? And so I want to use those gifts to, to minister to the body. But maybe make that plan. Say, so yeah, churches, it's like 9.15 to 11.15, unless Jay's preaching, like 12.15, whatever. Just like, let it be, hey, what else do we have going on? Like, this is the body of Christ. We're participating in the body of Christ. And we do so in love. So this is where I want to end. And I, and I wish, because I really wanted the climax to be chapter 13. And I wanted to make the point, but I'm just gonna pray that the Spirit makes this point and lands it home with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. So now maybe you can get out of hearing it in a wedding and hear it here in the context of he's saying, you are members of one another, members of the body of Christ. You don't just attend the same church. You are members of the same body. And he says, I will show you a more excellent way if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. He's telling them, look, if you don't understand, you need to understand that without love, nothing matters. If you don't have love, it doesn't matter. Love is an indicator that any of this is done in the power of Christ. And we've said it before that just because because a person appears loving doesn't mean that what they are proclaiming is Christ. It doesn't mean that what they are saying is truth. But I will say, if they are not loving, then the truth that they speak is worthless. It is a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And so as Paul is pointing back, he's saying you're worried about whether it's right or not to eat meat. That doesn't matter if you don't love your brother enough to give up meat. You're asking about like whether you should speak in tongues or not, but you're missing the point. If you don't love those who come into the church enough to not want to confuse them and cause chaos, then you're asking the wrong question. Saying, you're asking the wrong question. Like you think it's about whether you were right or you were wrong in this and in, in bringing this lawsuit. You're asking the wrong question. Like if you don't love your brother enough to be willing to be wronged and defrauded, then you don't understand. It is worthless. Being right is worthless. Being a member of the body is abiding in the love of Christ, the lifeline, the heart, and serving the other members in love. And all of this is because of the gospel. So I would encourage you, even this morning, and I'll do that as the benediction, but Paul ends where he begins, which is with the gospel, and reminding them that all of this is because of Christ. That of first importance, I preach to you the gospel which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And he talks about how the Jesus risen from the dead is how we are able to live like this so that is our calling we are the body we are people of the resurrection empowered by the spirit I'm going to have Jared and Stacy come up and as they do just want to exhort us like as let us be known as people who are humble knowing that all has been given to us as a gift Let us be people who are soft towards sinners and fight alongside one another in sin. Let us be known as people who lay down their rights for the good of others. And let us be known as a people who take worship seriously, who know that the God of all creation meets us here. And baptism is a demonstration of that, our unity with Christ and therefore the unity with the body.